Thank you, Lance. Thank you very much. So, um, praise God. That is kind of like our meetings. I like it. The new definition for a leadership team meeting is rambling punctuated by prayer. I like it. I want to show all the kids something. Pre-K and K are get to leave. You haven't left yet, have you? Pre-K and K still here? We're going to have blast, but don't leave yet because I want to show you something. My daughter was showing me something in the back of our van today. My nephew and niece were in town, and <clears throat> she was doing something with her hands. You may have heard of it. I want everybody to do this together this morning. But she said, um, uh, this is the church. Have you done before? This is the steeple. Open the doors, my feet, and, and there's all the people, right? And I said, that's actually theologically incorrect, honey. I did say that. That's kind of father I am. I'm sorry. Do it with me. Here you go. Put your hands like this. This is the building. This is the pointy thing on top. Open the doors, and there's the church. You know what I'm saying, Family Bible Church? The people are the church. Praise God. Children, know that you are the church of Jesus Christ. You are by the power of the Spirit of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Man, that's the truth, and it's not a building. that You open the doors, and there's people in it. It's the Spirit of God that's dwelling in us. So I hope you hear that this morning. Children, pre-K and K can be released. Blast teachers and workers can be released as well for that. And uh, praise God. We have, by the way, if, and now for everyone else, like over pre-K, K who's staying in here, we have coloring books available. Um, and we don't, it's not just a pastime. It's a way for them to engage in worship. So if you have kids here today, there is a box in the back called the children, it's called the Blast Summer Fun Box. And it's got crayons and books and everything. We have some tables. They can sit down and color and just hang out. They're not going to bother us at all. We believe that Jesus loves children, and so do we. So I hope that you'll uh, allow them to do that. So this morning, we're going to continue in, in worship, and we're going to get into the Word of God today together and continue our series in Second Peter. Now, Second Peter is the second part of two letters that Peter wrote to the churches. And if you've been even a, kind of around the church, you understand that, that um, who Peter is. And it's funny because Peter's kind of this guy who's like a dichotomy. You either know Peter as uh, St. Peter, the Holy One, you know. Uh, matter of fact, some would say like the first, the first head of the church, the, the Pope, the Roman Catholic Pope actually claims it's the ascendant directly from St. Peter, okay? So that's the Holy Peter. And then you have the other par portion of Peter, which is this crazy guy who's always putting his foot in his mouth when he's following Jesus, not, right? He's always the one that says goofy stuff when Jesus is doing holy things, Right? Sounds like, like you and me. And so I, I want to talk to you today some more from Second Peter about what he has to say for the church. But I want to share with you this morning a, a word, because I said last week why Peter wrote these letters. And the cool thing about the Bible is if you will open it and read it, you know, there's mystery, but it's pretty plain also what it says, what the Word of God says is pretty plain. And, and uh, as we wrap up our next week, will be our final week in the series um, called Estranged. But Peter says in the opening verse of chapter 3, he says this, Dear friends, this is my second letter to you. That's what we're studying, Second Peter. And he says this, I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. You see, and why that's significant is Peter writes down in the letter why he wrote the letter. He says, I wrote this to you to stimulate you toward wholesome thinking. Both of these letters, first and second Peter. And I think, well, now that's interesting that he says, I, I want to stimulate you towards wholesome thinking. What, why does Peter worry about how our minds work, right? 
Because we say things in church all the time, like, give your heart to Jesus, let Jesus into your heart, you know, be, be empowered by the Spirit of God. We say these things, um, may we be more like our Savior and less like ourselves. May we become more like kingdom people, people who are bound for eternal glory. We say these things, and yet here Peter writes these two letters, and says, I'm writing them to shape your mind toward wholesomeness. It reminded me of something that we've been doing at Family Bible Church, and I do it other places too, but we, uh, we get involved in like athletics and stuff, and one of the things we do is we have a so couple softball teams, okay? And what's funny is, and this is a kind of a weird connection, but I was thinking about it, because I find myself, especially, see, we play at night, and it's weird, because if you play softball during the day, it's like, you know, almost like you just do it naturally. The ball's coming, you run for the ball, you catch the ball, for me, like, what, 60% of the time? But I'm just saying, you know, 60, 70. Most guys are 100% of the time. They run, they catch the ball. You turn on the lights at night, it gets dark. We have a yellow ball. Some guy hits it really high into the outfield, and you're looking at this ball, and you think, I have no idea. But what's really wild, and I've realized this, because I play in another league that's not our church league, and, and, and out there I feel even more pressure to perform. And so whenever I'm out there, I start to get all worked up about making the catch when the guy hasn't hit the ball yet. And you see, there starts to be a message in my head about what's about to happen. And, and I find myself, and I don't know if you're like me, but I find myself in the outfield going, oh, he's going to hit it to me, and I'm going to drop the ball. <laughs> now, anyone who's a professional athlete will tell you, you're going to drop the ball. <laughs> If you start your life like that, if you're looking at something, you're saying, this is going to happen and it's going to be a disaster. Guess what? You're right. It's going to be a disaster because your head isn't on straight. And so when Peter says he's writing these letters to the churches so that they might have stimulated us towards wholesome thinking, he says, get your head on straight, church. Know who you are in Christ Jesus. And then you can stand confident and you can make those plays. You can deal with that thing that's coming towards you. You can face it head on because God is empowering you through his word. We talked before at Family Bible about promises of God, and, and I, I hope that more and more you are claiming the promises that God has revealed through his word versus ones that you've kind of made up hoping it's true, you know? Like the promise like, God's going to give me whatever I want. It never says that. And so when God fails at that promise, it's because he never promised it. And so for you and for me, I hope that our lives are more and more shaped by what the Word of God says about who God is and who we are in Christ Jesus. And Peter wrote these two letters to stimulate us toward wholesome thinking about that reality in our lives. So as we get into the Word today, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. We always do this, and today it's going to be very clear why. But today I want to ask you to join me in prayer as we open the Word together. Father, today we come into your house to worship you. We've already continually done that. We've, we've woke this morning with an awe about who you are and a glory to your name. We've come in, even during rehearsal, we are worshiping you. And, and when we come and we are practicing for the eternal service of worship that we'll be doing at your throne. Today, Father, we come into your house and we've prayed and we've thanked you and we've leaned on you and needed you and longed for you. And now as we open your scripture that you inspired by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would inspire us. The word is not dead. That it, where necessary, it would cut us, clean us out. Where necessary, we would be conformed to the word and not ask you to conform to our ways. That we would not be so self-deceived. That we would know that you are God and we are not. And we are just blessed 
to worship you as you are. Take this time, take ourselves, as much as we're able to give them, we will, but shape us into your calling us to be for your glory and for your purpose, we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to jump in where we left off last week, 2 Peter first, uh, 1, th- uh, verse 16. Now, it's going to be, if you didn't bring a Bible today, it's going to be on page 842 of the little kind of um, uh, earth and sky Bibles there that we have on the chairs. So grab one of those. And I'm just going to kind of walk through here and talk about some things. It's a lot of scripture, so don't sweat it because we're just going to kind of talk about what we find in here. I would encourage you, by the way, to read both of these books First and Second Peter, it's not a big thing. And if that's too much, you know, if you're overwhelmed, just read Second Peter, because Second Peter by itself is just a really profound uh, word from Peter. So read that, and uh, you'll be better prepared to come and, and to participate on Sunday mornings uh, with, in worship. Um, I want to remind you that in the, the opening of the second letter, Peter uh, reminds us of what we have received and the precious faith we have in Jesus. He writes the letter. He says, who's the letter to? It's to those who've received the faith as precious as ours. That's what Peter says about you and me who know Jesus as Savior. And he, tells, he reminds us that everything that we have in our Savior Jesus, the promises that we have, who we are and whose we are, And the second thing is that he encouraged us, last week you'll remember, to build on that faith. So the faith is a gift of God. And he says, now add to the faith these things. Build yourself up in this. And he goes through that progression. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. It's very straightforward what he uh, kind of encourages us to do as followers of Jesus. And then then this week he's going to kind of pick up right where he left off last week in verse 16. But I want to remind you of one more thing, that when we know Jesus as Lord, Master, as Savior, right? Savior is he saved us, but Master means he's ruling. We talked about what Lance said earlier. When we make decisions, we're serious about sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening for an answer because we don't want to be part of what he's not part of. But the reality is that as followers in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are in Christ, You see, we say Jesus the Christ. It's a title. It's anointing. It's his messiahship. I I told you already that the Christians were first called little Christians or little Christs in in the, the book of Acts. And so in some way, by receiving this gift of faith, you and I are also in Christ together. That means that we participate, like I said last week, in the divine nature, you and me. And that's kind of overwhelming to me. It really is overwhelming to me to think about that reality. But when Peter starts to talk about these things this week, he says that we are in Christ, that you and I are in Christ, in Christos, in the same way. And so what I'm going to talk about today is what we have in Christ that Peter talks about. So starting in verse 16, read with me. Because he's talked about always wanting to promise, to remind us of what we have in Jesus Christ. And he says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord. Look at the words, Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty because because he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Peter says this, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. And so here Peter records an eyewitness testimony. And so the first thing that you and I have in Christ is, oh, I'm going to go 
forward one more and then come back, but is an eyewitness testimony, right? An original witness, I should say, an original witness. And Peter says, when we came to you, we did not follow some convoluted, made-up thing. We only reported to you what we saw and what we heard, right? That quote might sound familiar to you. It says, God said this about Jesus. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is spoken twice over Jesus. And the one time that came to mind for me first was baptism. But the other time, and I want to pull back to that other slide right quick, is in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want you to turn there. Leave your finger here or put your, you know, if you have an engagement sheet, stick it in there. But I want to go back to Matthew 17, and I want you to hear uh, this story because it's really profound what happens. This is Peter, right, the follower of Jesus, and the one that Jesus turns to and says, hey, come do these things with me. And this is what the Gospel of Matthew records. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter right? That's the guy who wrote the books we're talking about. James and John, by the way, the brothers of thunder, and and the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, I want you to see, so Jesus takes a few disciples, and he says, come follow me up this mountain. You know, Jesus' habit was to pray, to go up the mountain and pray, and he says, come with me, come up the mountain with me, and so these guys get to go along on this journey with Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, in that place, he was transfigured before them. This is Jesus. Now, up to this point, Jesus is like a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's got some crazy ideas. But at this point, he leads them up to the mountain, and it says that he was transfigured before them. You might be wondering, like I am, what's that mean he was transfigured? It sounds important, right? Transfigured. Read on with me. This is what the word says. Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And just then, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So here's this moment where they follow Jesus up the mountain. They're invited in with him to see what's happening. He wants them to participate with him. He wants them to see what he's going to do. And he goes up the mountain, and he's transfigured where his face is like the sun. Have you ever tried to stare at the sun? You get an image of what we're talking about? And his clothes were like light. Now, see, you and I could say some things about people who wrote the Bible. You could say, well, they didn't know what it meant to have you know, lights on the ceiling. They didn't know what it meant to have, you know, evenings lit. But they knew what the sun was like and knew what light was like. And they said, when we saw him on the mountain that day, he was transfigured into this this vision of sun and light. I mean, you can imagine what's happening here. It's glory. It's beautiful. And then these Jewish followers see Moses and Elijah talking to their rabbi. This is a profound moment for for those who are able to witness it. This is a life-changing moment for Peter, James, and John. And so it says this. Now, here's Peter, and you've got to love him. But he says here, Peter said to Jesus in the middle of this, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, because he's ready to kind of make, just set the table here. He knows how to worship properly. They all deserve some worship here. And this is what happens next. And this is what Peter reports in his letter to us. While Peter was yet speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud spoke and said, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
And you see what happened there. They got a plan. They know what they're supposed to do. And God shows up and he says, no, this is my son. This isn't Moses or Elijah. This is my son. Look what happens next. This is normal operating procedure for Peter. In that moment, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. Do you remember Peter? When Jesus caught the fish, he fell down the boat. He said, I'm a sinner. Here he is again. He's been following Jesus, and he's up on the mountain. He gets to see this vision, and then, man, just like that, he's down again because the glory of God, God spoke. He's in God's cloud. In that place, he's humbled to his core. He knows you don't speak there. In that moment, I want to just finish with the story here. Jesus came and touched them. What a great, great word. And he said to them, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, all that was left was Jesus. Wow. So in the scriptures, in this letter that Peter wrote to the churches, that we can just blow it over. We can read it in 40 minutes and go, eh, great. What's the point? Peter says, all I'm telling you is what I experienced firsthand. I'm an original witness. I didn't make up stories. I was on the mountain. You wouldn't believe it. God spoke. In that place. By the way, if you want to look up that story of transfiguration, other than Matthew, it's recorded in all three synoptic gospels. It's recorded in Mark 9, 2 through 10, and it's recorded, recorded in the Gospel of Luke 9, 28 through 36. By the way, all those things Jesus, Jesus does that transfiguration, he leads them up there after he says, follow me. Actually, compels them to be a follower after him. So we have here in this letter from Peter, firsthand witnesses. He says, I, we aren't making things up, but we are only telling you what we saw, the honor and the glory that God gave to his son Jesus on that mountain. What a great testimony. And he says this, we ourselves heard his voice. Now, check out what, what he says next here. And I'm going to get ahead a little bit, and then we'll kind of catch up. But it, verse 19 says this, and we have all the word of the prophets made more certain. You see, he's already said we've seen something that God did, but we have the word of the prophets made more certain. I lost my place. Okay. Uh, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, and I read that the first time. I'm like, oh, that's cool. So he's like, you know, the first thing was that we have uh, living witnesses. And the second is that we have this kind of on, this ongoing testimony that um, the prophets have written about Jesus. And so he says, we even know even more what the prophets were writing about. But I want you to see what he says here in verse 19. He says, we have the word of the prophets. That's the first testament. The whole first testament was written to talk about the coming of Jesus. If you don't understand that about the Old Testament, you don't understand the Old Testament. It was written about the Messiahship of the Son of God. And so he says, we have this testimony of the prophets that were written down for you and for me. You would do well to study it. And look at what it says. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Study it until you get it, that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't just take my word for it, but study the word of God until you understand it, that Jesus is the anointed, the holy, the only son of God sent to save the world, sent to be your Lord and your master. 
And so we have this ongoing testimony here. Now read with me in verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. And that sounds like a lot maybe of gibberish, but I'm going to walk through that in a minute. Because prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so here, this is the key to understanding this Revelation, this ongoing revelation from God, is that the Holy Spirit of God inspired prophets. And what Peter says here is, remember this above everything else, no prophecy came about because, by the prophet's own interpretation. When the prophets would speak about Messiah coming, they didn't know how it was going to really happen. They only spoke what God gave them to say. And that's a big deal. Because it's God who fulfills the prophecy, and it's God who gives the answer. And that's, that's key to understanding this ongoing revelation of the Holy Spirit. Because prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God, listen to what the word says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why you and I, when we engage in the Bible, whether we're doing it privately on our own time, whether we're doing it to, you know, today as a corporate setting, whether we're doing it in a small group setting, whatever the environment is, I can't encourage you enough to ask God to help you understand what's about, what you're about to experience. Because he wrote it, he knows what it means, and he will inspire you to understand it. I've had people say that to me before. Oh, I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. Are you asking God to help you understand his word? Because it's there. It's a gift of being in Christ, to have this ongoing testimony. And these men who were prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, he's going to change gears here a little bit. And, um, and, and it's gonna, he's going to talk about something that's really important for you to understand. And I hope, and it's kind of the main thing today we're going to talk about. And it's this, that before Jesus, he's going to make a distinction here in chapter 2. But we have all these prophets talking about the coming Messiah. Okay? The prophecy, the prophecy. The one, the anointed. He's coming. He's going to save us. He's going to rule and reign forever. And then Peter's going to turn the corner here and talk to the people about where they are now. He says this in verse 2. Or, or chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people. So back then when people were speaking the word of God, there were people who were not. Just as there will be false teachers among you. And so he's making a connection here between prophecy and teaching. And he's saying there were all these prophets who were speaking the word of God, but some of them were not telling the truth about God. Okay? And now he's going to turn the corner and say, and there's many people who are going to teach you, but they're not going to teach you the truth about God. And so he's making that transition. And that's important for you and for me to understand as followers of Jesus that Peter here says, just like there's false prophets, there will be false teachers. Um, you and I just recently had a chance to experience a, uh, a prophecy that turned out to not be true, right? There was this big scandal nationwide. And there was these people who sold everything. And you know what's funny, actually, is it reminded me of um, the same thing that happened in the year 2000. And it's funny to me because in 2000, I was an IT guy. And there were people who thought the world would come to an end because computers were going to crash because there was no, like, no four-digit codes in the computers. They were convinced it was going to happen. You know? uh, and, and it didn't. And so in the same way, um, with some you know, bad math, it seems, uh, there was this mistaken prophecy, but they had convinced people that it was true. Now, here's what's interesting about prophets. And this is why it's a pretty tough job. If you want to get into the job of being a prophet, it's kind of a tough field because you've got to be right all the time. <laughs> okay? I mean, if you're going to say you're a prophet of God, 
there's no room. You got to be right. Like, this is how God works. So if you speak, you know, for God, you got to be right. And that's a pretty tough job to fulfill. So what we had happen just recently was all these people were following this person who had made prophecies before, and, and they had not quite been right. But then they went back and did more math and got a, a different prophecy. And this is only dangerous because you and I can be misled into these things, to the hype. And we can confuse our passion for the sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ, with this need to know what's coming, this desire, this insatiable desire to be ahead of God on things. And I'm sure, I would wager, um, that there's math happening right now to figure out where the miscalculation was because it's got to be in there, <laughs> you know. So we're familiar with the idea of, of false prophets, and, and that's pretty easy. But Peter doesn't talk here about false teachers, about false teachers. And, and I am excited to share this with you because here's the truth. I stand up here every week, and I do my best to discern what the Word of God says. And I pray, and I join you in prayer, and we enter together. But I can't ask you enough to engage in the conversation directly. And like Lance said earlier, rebuke me if you think I'm wrong because I'm human like you. You understand that? So don't, don't, you know, I said to somebody, the worst things I hear is they say, well, Bill said, no, man, let's get into the word of God and let's be like, you know, I, I, I see this in there or I don't see that in there. Let's, let's take it apart together and let's look at what God has to say. I want to show you today and I'm excited to show it to you because I love that God, the sword cuts both ways and I'm, I'm so excited to get into it that um, he says there are some ways that the false teachers will be identified among you. And so the first thing we have is this eyewitness testimony. The second is ongoing uh, witness. And the third thing that we have is a way to know false teachers. That in Christ, in this anointing, in Jesus, you and I can identify false teachers. So there's really no excuse. You can't be like, well, I, I thought. I mean, you can do it for a while, but you have to be discerning what someone's teaching to you. Is that right or is it not right? And God's given us that ability to know false teachers I'm going to just jump around here a little bit. I would encourage you to read this whole passage. There's a lot in there, but I'm going to jump around a little bit. But we're going to start with the very first thing you see in, in the chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, there will also be false teachers among you, right? You will be, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Heresies are things that are not true about God, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, who bought them. And so I would say this, the first thing that we see in false teaching is denying God's sovereignty. And I say this not as one who has it mastered, but as one who sees it in my own life. The moment I start to think that God isn't sovereign, that Jesus isn't Lord, and that he's not ruling over everything in my life, the whole thing comes apart. And so this is uh, the first kind of um, step toward a very destructive teaching and a very dangerous teaching. And you and I should be aware of it. Those who would even deny, I mean, Peter says, like, as if it's possible, they'd even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. Make no mistake, this is Jesus the Christ, the one who died for our sins, who paid for us in full and is sovereign over our lives as followers of his. And we begin to deny him, deny his sovereignty, deny his lordship in our life. The second thing, it comes in verse 3, and I'll say again, I'd encourage you to read these later. It says, um, 
In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they have made up. Now, you remember Peter said, we didn't make up these stories. Everyone was there. We saw it. And so there's a temptation in greed to start to make up stories about what God's doing. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a, a fear that I have as one who is in clergy. There's times that I watch other people who are, who are, who are um, putting on the same cloak of Jesus Christ and claiming the same things, but it just, it just, there's something in my spirit that goes, no, no. There's something else motivating them. Exploiting the people of God for greed, Peter says, is a sign of a false prophet. If, if you ever sense me doing that, church, please hold me accountable. Why? Because it's my own destruction, Peter says. It's our destruction as a church if we go there. Jump ahead with me in, uh, to verse 10. That's a big jump. We'll come back, I promise. In verse 10, it says this. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Listen to what he says about them. False teachers are bold and arrogant. They're not afraid to slander celestial beings. So the next thing here is that, that false teachers lack humility of any sort. I mean, they, they just, you know, they're just so confident. That's part of why they're leaders, but they lack humility. They're bold and arrogant, and they're not afraid to speak against anything. Even the things the word says that angels would not speak against. Angels would not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord, and yet false teachers will. They blaspheme. They don't understand. And so there's no humility. And these are things we've got to watch for, church. Verse 15, we'll pick up the next one here. And there's more in here, and you can say that. I could have gone through here and got more, combed through it more and more, but these are the things that stood out. Verse 15, they have left the straight way, and they've wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, okay? And the way I summarize that is that the false teachers become driven by ego. They become driven by ego. They don't start off that way, but it begins to become more about me than you, more about the leader of the church than the church, more about you know, what, what their lives are, are, are um, their publicity, their fam uh, famousness. Write this down if you want to look it up. Numbers 22 through 24 is the story of Balaam. Balaam's a really interesting guy because he was a prophet, not from Israel. And when Israel was coming in and they were going to win, a king, a foreign king, got afraid. And he heard this guy, Balaam, could, could, you know, kind of pronounce things for God. And so he sent for Balaam and he said, come to me. I want you to pronounce a curse against the Israelites. Now, the problem is that Balaam could not speak things that God did not say. He, he was only a prophet. He couldn't, he didn't get to wield the power of God. He only got to, you know, to uh, proclaim what God was going to do. He had nothing to say about the fulfillment. And so here, he, he becomes driven by ego. And the story of Balaam is this. He starts to, he wants to go. He tells him, I can't do this, but he's going to try anyway. And he starts to try to find a way. For why? For money and for ego. Because he's Balaam. And he's great. I mean, he's great at his job. And the story of Balaam, which is fantastic, I'd encourage you to read it, 22 through 24 in the book of Numbers, says, um, 
says that uh, he, he, uh, he's riding this donkey. He's ridden his whole life. And the donkey, God lets the donkey see the danger he's riding into. And so the donkey sees this angel that's going to kill Balaam. And the donkey turns. And when the donkey turns, Balaam kicks the donkey really hard until he goes back on the road. And the angel gets in front of him again. And the donkey turns again. And this time he smashes his foot against a rock. And he breaks Balaam's foot. And Balaam's aggravated. And so he beats the donkey with a stick. And the donkey gets back on the road. And the last time, the angel is standing there and there's no way to turn and the donkey lays down and says I am not going anymore with you and as Balaam begins to kick the donkey God lets him speak do you know what's in the Bible and the donkey says how could you do this to me I'm being obedient and in that moment God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of destruction waiting to destroy him waiting to destroy him and sometimes, and this is true for any of us, but ministry leaders can become so driven by ego that they bang on the church of God and they bang on the people of God and they push them. And, and there's no movement because people are discerning God's will. And this is not a light thing. And so you and I should be aware that there are those, and it could be us, who are driven by ego, just like Balaam. We're going to make it happen. And the last is this, and it's in verse 18, the last one I want to point out to you. It says, their mouth is empty. They speak boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature and the enticed people who are just now escaping from those who live in error. And that's this, that they kind of do a bait and switch. Do you want a better life now? <laughs> do you want all your problems to go away? Do you want the money you deserve? See, you've heard people preach that stuff. Here's the problem. It's, it's, it's trivializing eternal things for temporal satisfaction. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you could be obscenely rich. No. That you could have eternal life. And this is what gets carried away. The word says they speak to men's fleshly desires. That means that the things that are in us that are against God, they, they call them out. And, and I think sometimes there's a good intention. They say, well, we're going to entice the men with these tantalizing things, but then we're going to turn them back toward God. But the problem is the motivation is wrong from the beginning because this is God's work and God's church. And therefore, they bring destruction on themselves and the people who follow. You see, I skipped over verses 4 through 10, and I'm going to close with that. And it's this. The truth that Peter writes down there is that God is able to separate his saints from those who are being disobedient. After going through all the things, you can read through them later, after all the ways that God has been both righteous judge and savior at the same time, in verse 9, he says this. If this is all so, and it is, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. So you and I don't have to fret false teachers, but we shouldn't be following them. You and I don't have to worry about bringing justice to the kingdom of God because God is just, but we don't want to be part of it. 
In the end, whenever Jesus sits on his throne and separates the sheep from the goats, he separates the, the, the obedient followers from the disobedient followers, the claim to be followers. When he does these things, you and I want to know him as Lord and Master, our sovereign King. And I pray that's true for you. Peter promises that God will rescue his people, but he always does it his way. So I hope, I hope this was, you know, I hope that you were challenged today. I hope that there's some things that you got in your crawl, only because I think that's how God works. It ain't me. It's the word of God. It's the word of God, and it speaks into our very beings about who we are. Today I'm going to ask you to pray as we always do, and I want you to know something, that despite all the religiosity and despite all the stuff you've heard in your life, there's one truth, and that's that Jesus loves you so much that he came to live and to die so that you and I could inherit the kingdom of heaven with him, that we could spend eternity in glory worshiping him. This is practice. This is rehearsal for an eternity with God. So we're going to ask God to do these things in our lives and to keep us from these errors. Please join me in prayer today. Father, this morning we come to your house and we've heard you speak from your word. We thank you that you've given us the ability to, to tell false teachers from teachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who proclaim your kingdom and your authority. And we pray first for ourselves that we would be those who would be caught with your sovereignty on our lips. Father, you know the times that are the hardest or, or, or whenever we feel like there's no way forward. We feel maybe abandoned or alone. And in that place, may your spirit well up from inside of us and say, no, because I know Jesus and he is able to rescue me. Send him to us today. If, if, if there are those here who don't know him, who don't understand the gospel, I pray your Holy Spirit would empower their hearts and minds to receive it. The one thing Peter has said consistently, Father, is that this is a gift from you to us, and we didn't deserve it, we don't deserve it, and we can't earn it. So today, may we receive it. And in our own lives, Father, every day as we seek to follow you, may you put us on guard against false teachings. May you keep us from error. And may we be proclaimers of the great and good news that Jesus died for us, that we might be free. We love you so much. We thank you for your word, the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. And we pray that even now as we continue in worship, that you would move in our hearts and minds to draw us towards you. We pray these prayers not hopelessly, but in the confidence that Jesus gives us. Because we pray in his holy name. Amen.